When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wise Cracks Movie Podcast. Show me the moonlight! <laughs> I am Austin Hayden, and I am joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond. Hey, everybody, how's it going? And of course, Ryan. Sup, film fans, how's it going? And joining us once again from the phenomenal film podcast When Cinephiles Attack, we've got Rashawn. What it do? Returning <laughs> champion. Returning champion. So this week we're going to be celebrating Pride by tackling the 2016 Best Picture winner, Moonlight, directed by Barry Jenkins, written by Barry Jenkins wait, wait, and uh, Terrell uh, Alvin McCraney. We're sure on that. We're sure we got the Best Picture. There was some conflicting... Uh, there was a conflict there at some point. After, oh, oh, it, no. after we're, sure, we're sure. We're sure. We're <laughs> sure. <laughs> Okay. Uh, yes, we are certain. Continue. Okay, we've checked. We are certain. Moonlight is the winner. Um, so it is co-written by Barry Jenkins and Terrell Alvin McCraney. Based on McCraney's play in the Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. It stars Trevante Rhodes, Andre Holland, Janelle Monet, who if you've not listened to her music, you should listen to her music as well. Naomi Harris and Mahershala Ali, as well as a few others that all do a phenomenal job. Everybody in this cast is friggin' stellar, which is something that I'm sure we'll talk about. But as always, we're going to go around and get first impressions. What was it like the first time we watched this film? What was it like on repeated viewings? however many times we've seen it, then of course this most recent viewing. Let's start with Rashawn. Rashawn, what was it like the first time you saw this film, and how about subsequent viewings? I'm going to be heavily biased this episode, but that's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I think uh, this movie is like a, a, a gift to me. Um, it's it's one thing to kind of, you know, check boxes of, of diversity and inclusion, but it's another to do that and actually be just a really fucking well-made movie and i think across the board there's just a ton of skill on display and it's it's an aching beautiful heartbreaking movie that i i I love i've watched it close to about 10 times (laughs) since 2016 um I, i love the score i love the cinematography like you just said the the performances across the board are are great um yeah, I, I I relate obviously to this movie a lot, and we can talk about that later. Um, but every time I watch it, I maybe I don't necessarily find something new about it, but there's so much to appreciate on every watch. And um, Moonlight, number one fan, he's right here. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I'm curious as to what this film. You know, there are certain films that uh, I don't know, like if there's philosophical meaning or there's some sort of like quippy dialogue or there's something flashy that's like, oh, shit, I never noticed that before. It almost feels like this film, rather than kind of like presenting these lateral things, will only suck you in deeper into the human experience, if that makes any sense. So that's kind of uh, it'll be curious to kind of like speak about how this film lasts. What's its staying power and why does it have that kind of gravitational pull inwards rather than kind of like showing you outwardly oh here are these 
like a Nolan film. You're kind of like, oh, look at all these technical things. I never noticed that weird like flourish in the background that they're doing. This one is a very simple film in a lot of ways, but it's also very complex in its simplicity. So that'll be interesting to kind of explore on the other side of the uh, of the breakdown of the synopsis as well. Ryan, what about you, brother? What was it like the first time you saw it, and how about subsequent viewings? So the first time I saw it, I definitely... Um... Well, I guess my, my overall thing I would say about this film is that I respect the hell out of it and I don't necessarily love watching it, right? <laughs> like, I, it's like y'all said, it's such a well made movie. You can tell, he, you know, I love some of the, ju- the editing juxtapositions and stuff, like the hard cuts at the really important moments. So he, he gets form and stuff in a really good way. It's, a, it's a, such a subdued movie. I think you said it perfectly, Austin, that it's like, it's such a simple film and it's complex in its simplicity or however you described it. And as a, so for me as a person who loves movies, like I, I love everything it's saying and, every, and, and, and the whole, what it's about and breaking it down, I'm sure is going to be awesome here on this podcast. But the process of watching the two hour film, I kind of am like, like, Oh yeah. What, what, I'll explain what I'm going to say in a second, but like, I didn't realize it was a play before the first time I saw it. And then the second time I'm watching, I'm like, you know, this feels so much like a play. And then I looked it up and sure enough, it's a play, right? And, and so I guess my question or my, my, my main thing I'm watching it as I'm watching it is going like, yeah, this is good. But like, I'm like, it sh- did it ju- does it justify becoming a movie? Obviously, it's the best picture mm-hmm. winner. So fuck me. I, what do I know? But like, like when I'm, I'm watching it and I'm like, you know, even the second time, it's like I'm not, you know, loving it. And obviously that's like, you know, you could obviously say, yeah, this movie's not made for me at all. Like, like in a, in a sense. But also, it's so universal too. So it's, I think it is absolutely something for everybody in the in the film. But like, yeah, the process it's 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 a very slow film, and I'm kind of like like did it need to become a film? I don't know. I, I would love to see the play, and and I bet it would be a very powerful play. And it's a very powerful movie too. So like like I don't mean to discount it, but it's just more. Those were kind of my my bare first thoughts as I was uh, that I collected as I was watching it the second time there. Sorry to burst everyone's bubble if, if this was going to be one where we all love the movie. <laughs> no, you know? no. Let's let's make a mental note of that because I think you're highlighting something that's interesting. Again, this is about adaptations that we've talked about a lot on this film is how do you adapt a story? I, I heard Tom Hanks say something once that I think was absolutely brilliant. He said, film is for directors, uh, TV is for writers, and theater is for actors. And Terrell McCraney is an actor, a writer. He's part of Steppenwolf. Um, so he kind of like bridges that divide. But there is something about – I mean I'm a theater geek and I live and work often in the theater and um, there is something about the theater that is very unique and then trying to uh, transition and make something that is very sort of performance heavy actor heavy spectacle heavy live live driven and it's written with that in mind and then to try to 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 convert that and to turn that into um, a screenplay is a is a challenge and so we can definitely talk about how Jenkins and McCraney did that together and to what to what effects we might say right and the challenges that it, it that it presents but go ahead Raymond what about you brother um well my my first impressions of this film uh, I actually the, the first time that I saw it um, was in theaters with you, Rashawn, and you had seen it before that and uh, you were enraptured by it. And 
I remember going to the movie and thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing this movie, but I'm also kind of looking forward to experiencing this with you. And there's, of course, that part of me as, as a friend that's like, God, I really want to like this for him. And, uh, you know, listeners may not know this, but Rashawn and I have a very long history of butting heads on movies in a major way. Um, and I enjoyed the film from the first time that I saw it. But uh, you and I even had this discussion yesterday, uh, off mic, obviously, um, where there was kind of a weight or a gravity to it that uh, seeing it in theaters was kind of one of those things that was like, well, I know, I know this, is, this is an important film, it's being heralded as such, and it's important to a person that I love, and I want, I want to understand it, and I think I, I went in with a certain kind of like expectation or a, a sense of like gravity or responsibility surrounding it in a way that made me feel like I was maybe just working a little too hard in the theater. Uh, and then I rewatched it for the podcast uh, yesterday or the day before. And uh, I just loved it. I just, I, I let it wash over me and, and uh, you know, we've, maybe get into discussions about, you know, is it a movie? Is it a play? Uh, there, there was an interview that uh, I read with, with Terrell McCraney, where he was saying that this, this play from the start to him, the writer always felt like it should have been a movie. And to wit, it's very, very difficult to find any evidence of the play's existence, other than the fact that there's a bunch of interviews about how this was a play before it became an award-winning movie. Like, I can't find the, the script for the play online. Uh, I think, Rashawn, you said it's never even been performed anywhere or staged anywhere. Um, that this was... Yeah, ter I guess Terrell McCraney... Uh, maybe, maybe it was workshopped at some point, but... To the best of my knowledge, and and I could be totally wrong about this, but I'm I'm pretty sure uh, I've read that it it, it just it, it never made it on its feet, and it only made it to Barry Jenkins through a friend of a friend. Um, so it it is just this weird kind of like twisted road to the screen where it, it goes through this sort of labor stage of of being a play without ever having been fully sort of realized on uh, on a stage. Uh, but I, I, I think it I think it fits right at home uh, on the silver screen, and that's not to uh, diminish your critique of it, Ryan. But I I just think there is, um, you know, watching this movie, I'm reminded of the uh, the the adage that uh, uh, the greatest special effect in cinema history is is always just going to be emotion. And watching this, it's just beautiful beautiful use of close up. Um, there's some beautiful use of uh, of asynchronous dialogue where. Barry Jenkins will just kind of hold these characters in in these close-ups while their dialogue plays without their lips moving or anything like that. There's there's all these these little flourishes that you couldn't realize on a stage, or maybe you could. You know, you can do a lot of creative things in that space. But I, I think that this is a perfect example of someone. And sorry, there's a plane going overhead here. Um, this is a perfect example of someone taking material and reformatting, adapting it for um, a different medium in a way that breathes entirely new life into the material uh, that, that really makes it its own thing separate from the play. Um, so I, I, I really enjoyed it, and I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, so I've seen it twice. The first time I saw it was I was much more interested in, let's say, the social 
cultural thematics of it and on which and, and it's phenomenal right i think um as rashawn was saying for issues of inclusion diversity representation etc cetera, etc cetera, it 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 ticks all those boxes and i think it's actually going to be really interesting for us to say like what does it mean to tick those boxes in a way that isn't tokenizing but in a way that is sort of like truthfully expressive and then when somebody has an opportunity to be able to bring a story that it is just simply from a peripheral voice what does that mean for the industry what does that mean for storytelling what does that mean in general for a cosmopolitan society right um and I think that's where my mind was the first time I saw it. This time going into it, to be honest, I was a little bit apprehensive because I didn't know if it would live up to my memory and of, to the hype. And I also was kind of like, fuck, man. Like, we just got into lockdown here in Sydney, and I know the rest of the world is like, boo-hoo-hoo. What is this year? Like, what, two weeks of lockdown? We've been in lockdown for a year and a half. Well, for us, it's like everyone is freaking out, and so there's a lot of anxiety and stuff that's happening here in Sydney because we just had this outbreak, right? So I was kind of like, fuck, man. This is just a heavy film right now, and I'm not sure. I'm in in the mood for something heavy. I kind of want to do something jovial. But um, I ended up kind of really getting not just the storyline and all the themes that I just mentioned, but I got really sucked in by the artistic design and the production design, particularly some of the staging, this cafeteria where there's all these red doors in a line, and that's absolutely beautiful. And when young Chiron is with his mom and there's like this purple light behind her. It's like a purple on the one side and kind of a pink light on the other. There was something about the mood and the tonality through the form of um, cinematic skill and technical prowess that really kind of resonated with me on this viewing that I didn't pay as much attention to the first time around. And so it was kind of lovely to kind of get that side of things um, as well. So for me, that was one of the lovely things about watching it on this second viewing. So, okay, real quick, I'm going to go into a quick recap and then we'll start kind of peeling back some layers and seeing if we can kind of kind of get into some some goodies here. So the film basically unfolds over three episodes in Chiron's life, his youth, his adolescence, and his early adulthood. During his youth, Chiron befriends Juan, an older drug dealer in the neighborhood who serves as a surrogate father while his mother is descending deeper into addiction and poverty. Juan teaches Chiron how to be a man, but also, and more importantly, how to learn to be accepting of who he is, that is, in due time. In his teen years, Chiron is mocked by classmates for being gay. He sparks up an unlikely romance with a classmate, Kevin, who, after their first sexual interaction, ends up being kind of prodded to beat Chiron up so that he can maintain his status with the other classmates. Chiron gets beaten up pretty bad, and after he heals up a bit, he ends up coming to school, takes a chair, and smashes it over the back of the head and, I guess, back of the classmate that urged Kevin to beat Chiron up in the first place. Chiron is, of course, arrested and sent to juvie. The final episode gives us a grown-up, Chiron, living in Atlanta, selling drugs. One night, Kevin calls him and offers to cook him a meal if he's ever back in town. So, after visiting his mother in rehab, Chiron heads over to Kevin's restaurant and catches up with him. He learns that Kevin has a child, and after an awkward encounter in the restaurant, they end up back at Kevin's, where Chiron confesses that Kevin is the only person who's ever touched him. Kevin embraces Chiron and softly strokes his head as the frame cuts to a young Chiron looking at the ocean in the moonlight just before he turns over his shoulder and looks directly at us. End of the film. It's a very brief synopsis, but I feel like 
Um, as we talked about in the simplicity, there's so much complexity. So those are kind of the broad strokes, but we'll start peeling those layers uh, back a little bit. But first, I do have to give a shout out to our sponsor, Skillshare. Skillshare is an online community where you can connect with other like-minded people and creatives and where you can explore projects that you are passionate about. And this is why Skillshare is so cool, because you can unleash your creativity and you can pursue your passions right from the convenience of your own home. They offer thousands of different classes for creative and curious people on topics such as iPhone photography, drone filming, video for Instagram, classes on improving your productivity, ad activism at the intersection of art, call artivism, um, that is basically creating and inspiring um, artistic creations for social change, etc., etc. It's for experts and for people who are novices or people who are just starting to try to learn about something, maybe to pick up a new skill set that you haven't been introduced before. So if you want to explore your creativity and if you want to connect with some cool people, go to Skillshare.com slash SMTM. That's Skillshare.com slash SMTM and you'll get a free trial of their premium membership. So if you want a free trial of the premium membership, Skillshare.com slash SMTM. And of course, there's also a link down in the show notes that you can click as well. So, okay, um, Rashawn, I was going to say not to put you on the spot, but to put you on the spot, um, you, you were saying number one fan, and you said that this film struck you at a personal level, um, obviously within your comfort zone. Can you elaborate on this and talk about what this film means? Uh, I, I'm a queer black man. Um, I grew up middle class in the suburbs of Virginia. So does not compare to, to, uh, where this film takes place. But, um, I guess I said that to say that, you know, I, I've never seen a movie like this. You mm. know, I've never seen a movie where someone like me, it would be the main character. Um, and those, even those representations in, in TV uh, and film across the board are, are few and far between. So that was a big, that was a big plus for me. That was what got me into the theater, um, with the exception of the trailer, which I think was just incredible. Um, and that was the hook, but I think that's not enough to really, you know, I won't just put a film in my like top 10 of all time just because, you know, it's about a gay black guy. That's not really, that's just like tokenism that I'm not interested in. You right. Know? I think what the movie does is it takes that specificity. It takes the setting of Miami. It takes this um, coming of age story and, and this beautiful kind of romantic chapter in the end. And, and it kind of folds all that into one man's experience. Um, I just feel like it, it just feels like a poem, you know, the, some mm. of the shots, um, like you mentioned about the um, Paula in the hallway and the, the purple bluish light behind her. It's just mixing, you know, a chopped and screwed version of Goody Mob with, you know, classical scoring. And it's just the marriage of all those things. It's so good. I mean, it, the Wong Kar Wai influences are all over the movie. Mm. I just rewatched um, Happy Together the other day before I watched Moonlight. And um, Barry talks about, you know, how much he is influenced by um, In the Mood for Love, Happy Together, um, Chunking Express. So I think to put all of those things into one film, 
whether Chiron is a gay black man or not, I think this is just something that hasn't been attempted before. And to do it and do it successfully is, is kind of what I love about the movie. I was just going to ask, like, this issue of tokenizing is something that that kind of like wears on me a little bit because I don't really know when is it tokenizing and when is um, is it good to just kind of um, have representation. So I was watching this film and I was like, I the, the question in my mind, and I was even saying this to to someone. I was saying like, like the thought that like the, the typically that you hear is like, what does this film mean for the black queer community? And then I was like, is that even asking too much? Is that a tokenizing question itself? Like, why does a film have to mean something for the community? And and I feel like what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it isn't doing that because it isn't just trying to tick boxes, but rather it's a it's a it's such a personal and expressive story in its singularity that if it has universal appeal, that's because of the kind of commonality of the human experience, like being a marginalized uh, a part of a marginalized community, rather than kind of like reversing it and being like, oh, we're just going to try to tell a story so that we can. I don't know, appeal to some sort of external standard or something like that. And that's where the poetry comes from because it kind of emerges from the truth, from the base, from the human, rather than kind of being like abstract. Is Do you think that there's something to that? Yeah, like the movie doesn't exist because Chiron is gay and black. He is gay and black in this movie and it's and that's part of his character and that's part of his development and coming of age and he just so happens to grow up into a man who loves another man. Um, I don't think there's any, even with you know his circumstances, his mother being an addict, he still is. It, it doesn't like devolve into poverty porn, and and it's not really like waiting in the trauma. There's yes. just like in a yearning for hopeful, unhopeful feeling. You know. Yeah. Sorry, Ryan. Go ahead. What were you gonna say, brother? I was just going to say, I'm glad that you told me that he has Juan Carwai influences because that makes so much fucking sense. Because a lot of the stuff mm-hmm. that I said in my critique of the movie, I would apply to a lot of Juan Carwai movies, you know? Oh, like, no. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, and, and I love him, by the way. I like, 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 it's just that he also has that very slow, subdued way of filming yes. a scene and is telling a story. And, and it's diff- one of those different strokes for different folks kind of things. I mean, this is an art film, first and foremost, I feel like. It's not for, like, like, oh, this is a party movie I want to throw on on a Saturday night with all my bu- buddies. <laughs> like, like this is a meditative story. And the fact that that, that takes, you know, a whole life, you know, like I love that it has the, the chapter, you know, the three beginning, middle and end chapters, you know, uh, and you're following a guy throughout his, you know, I guess half his life. Uh, uh, I mean, that alone is relatable to anybody, you know, just watching somebody grow up and then seeing them change. It's just that my, uh, with Wong Kar Wai and I guess Barry Jenkins, it's like, you know, the last 35 minutes of this movie can be summed up in guy goes to diner, man cooks him food. They walk up to his stand. They have an awkward conversation and then they hug at the end. And that's like 30 minutes of, uh, of filming. You know what I mean? And, and, and to me, it reminded me of, of like another filmmaker, uh, Gus Van Sant, you know, who will like obviously have these like that's part of his medium is in style is just these long, almost excruciating shots of just real time things happening. You know, like we were watching like those two guys hang out in the last part of the movie in real time. It's like you're hanging out, you know, it's, it's, it's naturalism fil- of filmmaking that not many people can pull off. And I think he does do a good job for it. It's just like, is that your thing or not? 
Well, see, part of the beauty, I think, of that final episode is precisely, though, that you have two people who communicate in different ways. Kevin is charming, charismatic. He always has been. He's boisterous. He's a shit talker, right? Um, and you have Chiron, who cannot express himself. And it's not just verbally. It's personally. It's his identity. There is there is this fundamental stopgap. And so the 30 minutes of... of yeah, of the time with them is highlighting almost the excruciating impossibility of Chiron able to communicate in a world because he doesn't have a place in a world, which is why I got chills when I when I watched the ending this time because I I was I, I kind of forgot what he says at the end to Kevin. But it isn't I've never been touched by a man since you. It was a person. And I was like, holy fuck, like intimacy touch um and this this man being isolated and like radical isolation and he's always been withdrawn he's always had some sort of problem with with self-expression and you get that wonderful conversation with Juan where you know um Sharon's asking what the f word means and and Juan is basically like you know like you'll find out who you are but don't don't worry so much like it'll come in time is kind of the gist of the conversation and it's this man who who is dealing with learning how to express himself over time and i think the fact that it's slow cinema in a, in a way really kind of enhances that struggle that impossibility and that difficulty and and i i, I definitely got in the mood for love vibes um watching this last last night 100% so yeah it definitely has that Wong Kar Wai vibe of, uh, yeah. you know, heavy on story, light on plot, that sort of thing. Where yes. there's, they they accomplish so much with, uh, and and to that end, you know, this was uh, this was something we discussed uh, uh, yesterday, Rashawn. But as as much as I think each individual chapter has its merits, I think that if I if I had to nitpick something, uh, in the second chapter, it feels a little bit like they're trying to force some plot onto him in a way um in kind of in a similar way that i feel like uh the middle the sort of the middle years of boyhood kind of hit a little bit of a slump when they're trying to like force a, a narrative trajectory onto this kid's life and uh you know obviously there's there's like i, I don't want to fault it for that because that middle chapter has to accomplish so much whereas the first and the third chapters are just pure poetry you know, especially the first chapter where Chiron isn't really like he, he's not necessarily proactive. He's not necessarily like the story's agent or, or protagonist. Um, you know, he's kind of just subject to the whims of the adults in his life. Uh, and and then in the in the third film, he's kind of like, or excuse me, in the third chapter, he 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 has a similar sort of energy about him that he is kind of like subject to not just the traumas of his past, but the, like the, the implications or the, the weight of his experience. Uh, and it, it, it's one of those things that's kind of um, really beguiling about that, uh, that third chapter that um, I, I mentioned to you, Rashawn, that when he meets up with Andre Holland in that, that scene uh, and they, they just sit down with a plate of food between them and, and uh, Trevante Rhodes just starts beaming in that scene at one point. And it's just like, you know, Austin, you said you didn't want to watch something that was this depressing right now because things are a little bit hectic over where you are. 
Um, but man, by that third chapter, it's, it really feels like it's all worth it. Like everything that you've experienced with him, it, it, like the crucible that, that that character endures in those first two chapters by the third one, you get this sense that like, oh no, like this is, this is maybe the first time he's not that he's smiled, but that he feels like in his body, like, and, and he feels happy and he feels like he has found like not necessarily that this is going to be the end of his story or that they're going to end up together and be happy forever or everything. But this is like, oh no, like he's a ship that has found the correct harbor for once at least. And, and like, he's, you know, he's, he's just where he needs to be right now. And right now that's good enough. I do love the third chapter. I don't find it as, as hopeful as, as you do. Um, because I think, the the movie in in a very subtle way has to deal with kind of internalized homophobia especially in the black community and in the first chapter he doesn't really know who he is or what he is he doesn't even know what being gay means and then he comes like smack up against it in the middle of the movie where someone is blatantly bullying him um kind of because that uh forget his name Terrell I think it is he he might also be gay as well um and he pushes to get Kevin to beat him up and so all of that happens to him mm. and he kind of builds this layer of of a persona and he becomes black and it's not until the end of the movie where the only person that has really been able to kind of break through to him kind of tears all that away again and it took like almost to he was damn near 30 for him to maybe hopefully in the future he'll feel comfortable in his skin but even when he gets to the diner it's like who are like what are you doing take the chain off take that grill out (laughs) and he like kevin calls him out on everything and he's like okay let me just take this take these teeth out what am i doing so i don't think he's fully formed yet but he found the person again who kind of sees like straight through him and so when they go to his apartment at the end, it's kind of like, well, this is uh, this is hopeful. Like things could get better, but he's kind of like a lot of black men do. A lot of black men are on the down low because the society, their friends, their family just want them to bottle it all in. And he doesn't he doesn't talk. He doesn't outwardly express anything. And then he meets his person that could possibly maybe in the future get him to change that. I was just going to say, it's interesting, too, how even his physicality from youth to teen to bodied up Trevante Rhodes, right? Like, and he spends a lot of time, you know, they've got the, the, the tiny little montage scene when he's listening to the message from his mom where he's doing push-ups and he's he's doing curls. And so it's kind of like, is this a way of him dealing with masculinity um, while also suppressing um, whatever it is in terms of his libidinal desires and the only outlet that he can allow himself is some sort of like sculpting of the form is he playing a role like what is it and there's a slight mention to it you know kevin says it doesn't look like you're skipping any meals right so there's also a mention of that that okay he's focused on he's focused on these other things as well as as the ways that he can express himself because he can't express himself otherwise yeah, what I was going to say is that I I didn't mean to imply that he is like fully formed. I, I think I had even said that, that he, I think in chapter three, it's even reflected, I think, in the chapter subtitle, probably intentionally, that 
he is he is playing a character in a certain way because and especially considering the fact that you know uh, uh, um, Andre Holland's character uh, Kevin he's he's the one who's constantly calling him black or referring to him as black in the second chapter and it is that thing like I said where chapter one and chapter three he does feel like he is not necessarily I don't want to say he's an object in this world but he is he is subject to the the whims of either familial pressure or societal pressure in a way that I also think the script kind of implies uh, Kevin is Um, obviously like with regards to what you were just saying, there there is a lot of uh, external and internal homophobia, uh, especially in certain communities. But we never really get a very clear sense on how Kevin sees himself as a as a sexual being. Like he has a son. Is he is he closeted? Uh, is he bisexual? Like how how does he identify? Um, and there there is that that notion that like all the time we've been spending with Chiron that there is kind of a not necessarily a, uh, a a mirror sort of uh, uh, arc that Kevin has been experiencing, but you definitely understand there there has been a story happening between these chapters for him as well that that implies that like once again these like I said this this might be the, just the right place for right now where who knows they they may just pass like two ships in the night again and go another ten years without seeing each other. What do we think about the final shot? Then, so you have this, um, you have this lovely embrace um, where Kevin is gently, he's holding him and gently stroking his head, which I think is one of the more. It's such a powerful choice to make it that rather than them kissing or having sex. Like you don't know what there's something about it because it's so much like I'm just a human that's just going to embrace you and accept you which is almost even more powerful than just like a, a libidinal expression. Um, not that they that, that, that can't also be an, uh, an act of ex, uh, acceptance, but there's something so beautiful about it. And then there's like this hard cut to young Chiron, um, you know, uh, under the moonlight, which is basically a, a sort of direct allusion to the quote that Juan talks about that is also the title of the play, right? The black boys look blue. Uh, in the moonlight, black boys look blue, um, and then it's it's this serene looking out at the ocean. What is the ocean? Is the ocean hope? Is the ocean the horizon? Is the ocean freedom? And then he's standing there, maybe with hope, and then he turns back and looks directly at us. And so what I wonder is, is this kind of like a a reverse foreshadowing? It's kind of like a this is almost like the film Irreversible. Like you've seen the tragedy that happens in a life. And then how can you look at a black boy that's repressed under these conditions and then look at them with a sense of hopefulness, knowing the destiny that they're going to fulfill, the poverty, the life that they're going to be sucked into, uh, the inability to express itself? Is that the tragic moment where then you look at a young boy, which could be any young boy in a similar circumstance, right? And then you say, oh, we know how this ends. And therefore, that's where the tragic element comes in. What do we think about that last shot? Well, tying tying the the last image, and to go back to um, not the last last image, but uh, the the image of uh, of Trevante Rhodes and Andre Holland together, just just to tag that, there is something really beautiful about seeing Trevante Rhodes, who, like you said, is like cut from marble in this movie, reduced to su- like 
not Being necessarily infantile. Yeah, Almost. but it, it, it's yeah. someone who is requiring someone else for support and, and who is like actually giving giving himself over. Like you get the you get yeah. the implication that his his physical transformation between chapters two and chapters three and chapter three may may have something to do with the incredible trauma that he's endured and having to build this physical shell around him so that he's he's unfuck withable. Um, but by the time you you cut from Trevante Rhodes to uh, I'm sorry, does it, does anyone know the the child actor's name? He's wonderful in the film. Um, who plays uh, who plays Chiron. Alex Hibbert? Alex Hibbert, right? Um, when you cut from uh, from from black to little, there there is that implication that oh, this is th- this could be. I don't necessarily know that this is what they're going for, but at least how I read it was this notion that as each and every one of these chapters roughly takes something of the same shape, it, it could be this suggestion that a lot of this is cyclical in the way that trauma mm. always, not always, but trauma does have a tendency to repeat itself. Trauma becomes self-sustaining the way that people carry it with them, like a, a Newton's cradle until they can pass it to someone else. And then mm. before they know it, it comes swinging back. And it is one of those things that, that does if you want to give a pessimistic reading of it, it implies that once again, like we were saying before, he's not out of the woods yet. You know, like he, he has these little breaths, like some of those beautiful moments with Mahershala Ali in the first chapter, Janelle Monet's fucking incredible in her moments yeah. opposite uh, the first two Chirons. Um, You know, there are these moments where you, you feel some sense of reprieve, but they are short lived. And it, it's kind of that, that concern by the end of the film that, Oh, is this, is this just another dot in that same, you know, pattern? Yeah. Well, like I said, it's it's really, it is hopeful, but um, but you said not as hopeful as I thought it was. So I'm trying, I'm trying <laughs> to make your argument here. Don't don't swing this back. <laughs> no, on. it is. There's a there's a running motif of water, um, and at the in the first chapter of course there's the the scene that everyone probably has seen whether you've seen moonlight or not um juan takes him out and teaches him how to swim Mm. and then throughout the rest of the movie anytime something really traumatic happens or something overwhelming he he takes a bath he has to you know boil the water at home and take his own bath or the the ice and the sink up and he kind of washes his face um, and then the last time you see him as black, he's dunking his head in ice water. So it's that continuing, maybe like a cyclical thing where he, he has to not necessarily start over, but just kind of wash, well, yeah. wash away any kind of it's a baptism edifice kind of yeah. like a, like a rebirth. And to, obviously, and, yeah, and, a rebirth. and obviously the, yeah. the Pentecostal and charismatic, um, influences within the black community in the United States are so deep and so ubiquitous that I, I can't imagine that that wasn't an intentional nod to especially the way that he's cradling him in the water it is very much like a John the Baptist baptizing Jesus or something like that you know it, it, it definitely felt like that to me I, I also love the the subtle like story suggestion by going from the first time that we see Chiron dunk his head in the sink full of ice is after he gets uh, beaten up by uh, Kevin and Terrell and the other guys. And then when we see uh, Black doing it in the third chapter, 
it does not appear that he's, you know, trying to bring down any swelling or whatever. I, I just like this sort of weird story suggestion that maybe <laughs> when he did that the first time after getting the shit kicked out of him, he was like, yeah, obviously, uh, I'm not happy about getting the shit kicked out of me, but this feels so nice. <laughs> like, this is just his <laughs> his own little, like, it, just his kind of corner of serenity, like this weird thing that he discovered almost incidentally and... It, it, he has returned to it, I would assume, often enough that it becomes a leitmotif in the film, even though we've jumped 10 years into the future. Like, mm. I just, I, I wonder how many, like, sink ice baths he's had in the interim that he's just like, I just need, like, this is just, this is just my fucking little space where I can just close out the world and close out everything. It's the, it's the last time someone has, someone's held him, you know, was when he was in the ocean with Juan. And so he just kind of return oh, yeah. sorry right think about that my uh i was just gonna say that, that that what i got out of that last shot to me that was like what really made it that was like the saddest shot of the movie like that makes it a shakespearean <laughs> yeah. experience where where and, and i kind of took it as a like almost like a call to action like literally looking straight down the camera mm. at the audience like don't let this happen you know to like change society mm. please you know so that this doesn't have to be the story anymore we, we can stop telling this story you know, and uh, also, um, yeah, the fact that he's, it, it, it's that, that old saying, you know, like, I sh- if I would have known now what I, or no, would have known back then what I would know now or something like that. Yeah. Like, like, obviously, he has his whole life to leave and you know exactly what's about to happen. We've seen it. We just spent an hour and 50 minutes watching it. And so it's this tragic shot of him just, of, you're like this, this helpless boy that's going to live, you know, go, go on this road and you can't, and you can't do anything about it. But yeah, I think that we are supposed to, as the audience, leave the theater going, that was a tragedy, you know, like, like, and then you're supposed to look inward and, and be like, we got to change and not make, you know, not make this kid's uh, story happen again. Yeah, it has a dreamlike quality to it. And I kind of wondered last night, I was like, was that an intentional, yeah, what, are we supposed to be like, this film is um, a sort of like fantastic journey into the future of what is going to happen for this particular young boy um, or is it something, I mean, it's probably a little bit of that, right? Um, and then there's also maybe something else that's kind of, kind of saying like, like you just said, it's a call to action because this is a tragic tale of like, this little boy could be any little boy, um, under similar circumstances. And this is something that will just self-perpetuate if things stay the same. And so that's where the call to action comes from. And that's why it's a very singular story because it's a semi-autobiographical story in the first place, right? And so, but at the same time, uh, in philosophical terms, we sometimes talk about what's called a singular universal. It's that in the singular thing, the entire history or the entire totality is contained. You just kind of have to do enough peeling back of the layers and scraping beneath the surface, right, to kind of really see those hidden components of a singular life. And I think that's kind of one of the things that you get here is a much more universal tale, but that's compressed within a very sort of singular, unique experience. And it's that tension between the two, the uniqueness and the particularity, but then also that universality and and kind of navigating the contradiction between those two is a really interesting space and creates. And that's why I love what Rashawn said about how this is poetic. It is. It just feels like a cinematic poetic that that just uh is like bursting forth like there's a bounty there that is almost limitless that you can keep exploring and it accomplishes all of that without being didactic or sanctimonious in any way and that's i think key to kind of key to its power you know this is if you want to talk about like um 
was was it the very next year that Green Book won Best Picture after this one <laughs> yeah. did? Yeah, yeah. Which is which is very much like the old Hollywood model of how to do like a message movie and yes, yes, this yes, is yes. you know this is this is how you solve racism by teaching one Italian guy not to uh, not to use the N word or whatever. Um, and it, it it is just one of those things where it's like, uh, no, we, you you can just make a movie about uh like. A, a person as an individual like it doesn't have to be freighted with all that kind of baggage um and it doesn't it, it doesn't have to wear that on its sleeve yeah like i don't want to take this conversation too far afield but you know one of the other films we were thinking about discussing was tangerine right which um is is another kind of interesting singular exploration of a unique voice that then kind of shines the mirror on the audience and says okay this is the world and then you kind of have to confront the universal reality of the world by just looking at this singular marginalized story and i think that's when you that's when it doesn't become didactic that's when it doesn't become too on the nose and too preachy and it isn't that there's something wrong with like teaching somebody a lesson it's just that it oftentimes feels inauthentic especially if it's driven by like the hollywood machine right you're like wait a second here so it's it, it's always a tricky landscape to navigate i think if you're going to try to tell these more inclusive stories and uh, uh credit to uh to barry jenkins because i think both this and uh, i haven't seen medicine for melancholy but um if beale street could talk i think is also just a, a heartachingly beautiful movie that is just about an individual's experience that reflects greater cultural or societal pressures and expectations without without having to like be about that in big bold letters and stuff it's it's such a good movie uh, about it too being uh subdued and, and not being so preachy of a uh, it doesn't feel like a message movie which is good uh, uh but I, I do think that culturally you have to come kind of knowing the context and circumstances of this guy's environment and kind of the, mm. you know, the mores of the time. And I, and, and ironically, I think, you know, kind of how we were talking about how this movie is a call to action for society almost at the end, like in a weird way in let's say 50, 70 years or so, something when hopefully this is a foreign concept, you know, like the people having to hide, you know, their sexuality and stuff. Like I can see this kind of people looking back at Moonlight almost like, wow, that's a really dated film. It's almost like a, like a guess who's coming to dinner of our time. We're like, like that may, you know, and, and that made sense to everyone in 2021 or whatever, you know, but like now it's like, obviously we don't think about that. I mean, obviously that's the goal and who knows if we're going to get there as society, but, but that's kind of interesting to me that, that, that this is kind of, I think a movie of its time in a way like, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, this has the distinction. I think it's the first movie with an entirely black cast to ever win best picture. And that, and that's a, that's an achievement, but it's also at the moment, it's singular. So I think um, if you've never seen Moonlight before the whole La La Land mix up, that's what you know Moonlight for. And then people kind of bring their own um, ideas about, well, it won because it was black. It won because of this and politics. And you you can't watch a movie in a vacuum, you know, especially if you're well versed in film you kind of bring all of that into a viewing of a movie. So I agree with you that 10, 20 years down the line, if there's four or five more moonlights, then yeah, it, it won't be so 
uh, specific. You know, it, it, Moonlight will yeah. have one because Barry Jenkins and Terrell did their job, and it, and it's an incredible film. And the sheen of this one because it was a black movie won't really exist anymore because we'll start awarding Moonlights more, and mm. hopefully, you know the future will look a little different. But right now it stands out so much because it's the only one. And, mm. and not necessarily just awarding them, you know, but just just having more and more access to them. So the movie's very existence is not like something exceptional or something to be gawped at or whatever. I think we, we touched on this briefly in the Wonder Woman 1984 episode that uh, it's kind of unfair regardless of the movie's quality. Like, Moonlight, I think, is a brilliant film. Wonder Woman 1984, not so much. But it's very unfair for either movie to have to, like, shoulder the entire burden of representation. <laughs> right, for, right. Uh, for, you know, certain demographics or demographic intersections. Um, yeah, and that's something we put on the movie itself. It's not like the filmmakers are even doing that, you know. That's just like a, a movie press thing, you know. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things where this film succeeds so much is it never... It, it never is playing that game. It's just in the business of telling a really, a really beautiful story. But there, you know, that that's the kind of thing that, uh, who knows, someone could come into this exercise or this production with a more cynical outlook on it and say, well, it's important because we're the first to tell this kind of story with this kind of budget and yada yada yada. And hopefully, that like once again, that burden of representation won't be squarely on the shoulders of the movie that won the award for it. You know. Oh, for sure. And th- but there are always going to people that that are, that are going to have that more cynical, or they're going to have like the dollar signs in their eyes, or whatever it is. They're going to try to score social points or something like that. That's always going to be an issue, right? Um, uh, but but I so hey, I used if it I gets used us to... more movies of this quality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, then fuck it. Then maybe it's worth it in the end. Yeah, that's one of the things I do wonder, right? So you get you get the, it's kind of like the oh, but it's like it's just ticking the boxes to, to, in order to to kind of like have representation. It's like yeah, but you know what? Sometimes let's just produce stuff. Like let's just make the stuff, right? And sometimes you just need to do it. And even if you sit there in your principles and you're like, "Ah, oh, but it wasn't perfectly entirely 100% according to the ethics of how something should be made." Like fuck, no movie is ever made perfectly ethically. No piece of art is I mean not maybe no, but I mean maybe maybe it's the case. Like maybe we shouldn't be so rigid with trying to control how it is that everything is made. And sometimes it's just like, "You know what? Fuck it. It um it served a good purpose in the end, and I don't want to just do the ends justifies the means." as like a blanket thing but maybe sometimes maybe sometimes that's okay to think in those ways I, I don't really know but I do feel like that sometimes that maybe we need to just stop like waiting and waiting and waiting because maybe that's a way to protect ourselves because we're like waiting for our consciousness to catch up but why do we have to wait for like I don't know, 80% of the globe to be on board and, and to be ethically kind of aligned before um, we can produce the right kind of art or um, 80% of uh, of the filmmaking process has to be totally ethically derived. Like, like maybe you just got to kind of fucking get shit done sometimes, you know, kick down some doors. Well, it's the, I don't know. The double-edged sword of independent filmmaking, you know, on the one hand, you, you don't incur the economic risk that uh, would isolate those types of movies from being a four-quadrant uh, approach. Um, but on on the other hand, with notable exceptions, I think Moonlight being an obvious one, a lot of the mm. time movies of this budget range just they they never reach escape velocity and find uh, a much bigger audience beyond that. So, 
I mean, this was unfortunately mm. the lowest grossing best picture winner. Yeah. If we're talking awards and stuff, but I don't think most people really care about who wins best picture. But I mean, th- this was a you know a huge deal when it won, obviously. But um, that said, getting for there is a large subset of of the viewing audience or the would be viewing audience that sees a best picture Oscar and goes, okay, now I'll check it out. You know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think the great thing, too, is like speaking about representation and like these new platforms and new outlets. I was working with um, a producer in L.A. by the name of Rob Williams, who used to work with Michael Mann, and he works for like uh, BET and stuff like that on a lot of the originals. And one of our uh, one of the young directors that we worked with is a guy named Kyle Adrian Scott, who directed the Bobby Brown um, miniseries, uh, those those episodes. And um, Kyle is like one of these like up and coming young black directors that is, you know, was taken um, under the wing of like Spike Lee. I think he was Spike Lee's assistant for a while. And it's like those types of stories and the opportunities that Kyle gets to direct the, the, the Bobby Brown story when he's like, fuck, what was he, 27 years old or something like that. That now when Moonlight, and this is a few years back now, right? So now when a film like Moonlight wins, Kyle is the kind of voice um, that can become like another Ryan Coogler or that can, you know, that can do the next thing. And those are the those are the opportunities that do come from these things, even if it's not like it's on BET and you might be like, oh, OK, how many people watch BET? Not as many as watch Netflix or something like that. Nevertheless, people behind the scenes, the producers, the money people, they are aware of these stories. And so it's almost like... um. I, I, I don't want to say like a farm league because then that, that diminishes the actual artistic output, but it's it's definitely, one, a breeding ground, an opportunity for more creatives to be able to have outlets, and then it also kind of like creates a, a pathway, um, and, it, and it carves a path for other bigger budget films, other more important films, prestige films, fucking more important, that again, sounds like I'm denigrating um, the content, but um, in the eyes get, of get the public, you know what I mean, you know what I'm trying to get at, and I think that kind of thing is important, and, and I think that's why it matters, that's why it matters, because those opportunities do get do get uh, carved out. Um, is there any final thoughts here, are there, are there any other themes that we haven't explored that you think we, we cannot miss is there something about the direction something about the writing is there something about McCraney anything like that um do you want to talk about it theater uh uh, I mean I'm always down to go down the theater route I'm sure our audience would fucking be like no do not talk about theater please um but is there anything else Rashawn is there anything in particular that you wanted to bring up before we before we wrap up this discussion yeah uh uh, two aspects of the movie that um I really latch on to are uh James Laxton is the cinematographer and um, Nicholas Bertel, who did the score. Uh, I think those are two very integral pieces of the movie, um, especially a lot of people don't know how to like black people. Just going to say it. <laughs> and um, <laughs> this is a movie that takes uh, black people of all different shades and and just puts them on camera in, in a beautiful light. And I really just that's a, that's kind of a first because it doesn't always happen oh i was just gonna um, say dovetailing off of the the cinematography uh that you mentioned they uh ryan to uh, address what you kind of started the episode with uh, i think another thing that distinguishes this as a as a cinematic statement as opposed to a theatrical one is they they do try not only the asynchronous thing that that, that i had mentioned before but you know they they're capturing these images at a lot of different shutter speeds. Like they, they're clearly like playing around and experimenting. And, you know, there, there are some of those scenes like um, when, when he's in the bathroom and there's that sort of halogen 
buzz of the lights and they're capturing it at a shutter speed where the lights will flicker, which happens a lot on on digital cameras. I'm not I'm pretty sure this was shot digitally and not not on film. Um, But uh, yeah, there's just uh, like it, it feels intentional, though, the way that they're doing it, like they're they're just kind of bumping the shutter speed a little bit to to give you some texture on the frame uh, in a way that really does, uh, like I said, I, I think it, it was probably at the, uh, the forefront of their minds when, when going into this, that, you know, we, we can't just shoot the play. We've got to actually make this thing its own kind of statement. And um, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. Good, I, good I, movie. That's uh, all I've got to say. <laughs> movie. Yeah. And, and Nicholas Patel, I think he's just incredible across the board. Anytime he, he scores something succession, Beale street, um, he's just great. And then the last thing I'll say is I, I, I know that I bring a lot to this movie. Everyone brings their own baggage or, or background to a movie. But I, I think Moonlight transcends any kind of diversity or politics by just being a well-made movie. Best picture or not, um, I think it's just well-crafted, like I said in the beginning. Um so yeah, thanks for bringing me on. To we appreciate you joining movie. us. I knew, I I knew, like if we did this one without you, you would kill me. <laughs> I, I just two th- quick things. For one, I uh, I don't want people to think that oh, Ryan doesn't like naturalistic slow movies. He can't hack <laughs> That's sitting down saying. and sit still for thirty minutes or. Two That's what hours. I was thinking. Like, no. I was thinking that you're just a luddite ne- neophyte that just can't handle uh, the the art house cinema. That's that's what I was thinking. <laughs> no, this whole conversation. I love art house movies. So I was going to give you two. To me, what I consider naturalistic, naturalistic cinema, you know, cinema verte, even if you want to call it that, it's like obviously John Cassavetes is a woman under the influence, and and then to me, Robert Altman's Nashville. To me, that's like a very accessible, watchable movie where you feel like you're watching people live in real time and for long, you know, long long shots, zooms, whatever. Like like they use the whole uh, uh, his whole cinematic bag of tricks. And so, yeah, like, like to me, it's just like, there's different, you know, there's that kind of naturalism. Then there's like the Terrence Malick, and I would put this Barry Jen- Jenkins in this category, you know, Wong Kar Wai naturalism, where it almost looks like they're trying to punish you. They're trying to say, life is so fucking boring, and I want to show you exactly how boring it is. So watch this guy <laughs> eat a whole sandwich. You know, have you ever Jerry, seen, like, have you ever seen The Turin yes. Horse by Bellatar? I mean, that's a film that punishes you about the mundanity and the repetition of life. And guess what? I fucking love that movie. (laughs) I can be in the mood for that sometimes. The Turin (laughs) Horse is making its way onto the Show Me the Meaning bingo card alongside uh, uh, Wings Wings of of Desire Desire. for Austin. No, as long as we're uh, recommending movies, if you you really dig this movie and, and you like the kind of sort of like visual vocabulary it's playing in. There's a phenomenal film from a few years ago called The Fits, directed by Anna Rose Holmer, um, that has a, a similar like poetic vibe and explores some of these same themes from the perspective of a young black girl. Um, and uh, I, I fucking love it. It's a shame that she has not uh, made any other movies b- uh, besides that one. But uh, that's, that's The Fits. I think, it's, I think it's streaming on like Amazon if you want to check it out. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Cool. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and wrap up the discussion there. But before we get out of here, we want to do a couple things. One, normally we would go into the mailbag uh, and we'd answer some voicemails and things like that. But um, what we want to do now is we got a lot of stuff. We've been getting an onslaught of stuff about Bo Burnham's inside, which we love. But since we've been talking about it constantly, we kind of wanted to give it a little bit of a break. But what we want to do is we want to say, yes, definitely, please keep calling. Call us, call us, call us, email us. Um, you can email us at movies at wisecrack.co. You can ask us questions and you can call us and leave us a voicemail at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. But what we really want to ask now is for some suggestions. What films do you want us to talk about? So just fucking send us an onslaught of emails and voicemails. Keep them quick unless you have some sort of comment that you want to make, obviously on Moonlight or on anything else in our back catalog. But just send us an onslaught of uh, suggestions of films that you really want us to cover that you think we could sink our teeth into. So again, 1-213-534-8807. Or movies at wisecrack.co is for the email. And then we also want to just give a reminder to our uh, – if you want to support us, you can support us over at Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash wisecrack. That's patreon.com slash wisecrack. Get access to the Discord and all kinds of other goodies. And, uh, yeah, patreon.com slash wisecrack. So let's get out of here. Where can people find you on the internet? Rashawn, plug your podcast. Yeah, at Cinephile Attack on Twitter and Instagram. Um, when cinephiles attack anywhere you get your podcasts we just did uh, burlesque uh, another great gay movie um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, we'll be doing um, independence day for july 4th so oh, check nice. us out yeah we just passed 50 episodes and we did a disney renaissance uh, special so that was that was really fun and uh, check us out yeah thanks this, for this having past me year without podcast has been great man i've loved uh, loved what you guys are doing I appreciate you have you guys having me. So. Yeah, we love it. We love it. Ryan, where can people find you, brother? Find me on Ryan Shorts on YouTube and stuff. And also, uh, the, I released a musical on the Funhouse channel today. Woo, the musical. Also, one quick thing I want to talk... Uh, I have a beef with Barry Jenkins, the director of this movie, <laughs> because his next film was called If Beale Street Could Talk... And I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. Our most famous street is called Beale Street. But now there's a movie that confuses everyone because it's not about our Beale Street. It's about another Beale Street. <laughs> so, Barry, I, 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 look, I love Moonlight. I, well, you know, you saw this podcast. But but, uh, 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 but but we have to talk about if Beale Street could talk, okay? Because I got beef with that movie. At least make my, own, make my Beale Street uh, movie, too. Sorry, sorry for end of rant. On Ryan's shorts, you should make if our Beale Street could talk. Yeah, yeah, then... then yeah. yeah, okay, there you <laughs> and go. It's, and it's just you standing on the corner shaking your fist at the heavens. <laughs> I have a lot of footage of me just screaming if, if on Beale Street. Street so. If Beale yeah, Street okay. could scream. <laughs> um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. Uh, if you don't feel like uh, going to the trouble of sending an email to Wisecrack uh, with a movie suggestion, you can... Uh, just scream at me on Twitter there. Uh, Austin and I are always on there busting each other's chops anyway. Um, <laughs> and I have a bone to pick with Barry Jenkins. Oh, no. Don't do Lion King two and a half or whatever. <laughs> make make more make more Moonlights and if Beale Streets could talk. But, but the Memphis one. 
You can find me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. Find me on Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. You can hit me up on TikTok, Austin.Hayden. I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. I've got a YouTube channel, Austin Hayden, whatever, all the good stuff. You know, you know the thing. Ryan, send us out of here, my friend. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. This has been Show Me the Moonlight.